Now, let me ask you a question that I know the answer to. Have you ever had one of those days or weeks or maybe months where you got to the end, when the sun went down, there was nothing left you could do, and you just like flopped down on the couch or the bed and just rubbed your eyes and thought, oh, what happened? Maybe it was a road trip where you you all got set to go in a vacation time. You got the car packed. You got the dog in the back. You got the cat. Who cares about cats? You got the somewhere else. I'm going to get in trouble for my mom for that. Sorry, mom. Gosh. The cat is well loved and taken care of by someone else because it doesn't come on vacations because who travels with a cat? Kids are in the back. The stuff is packed so you can't see out the back mirror. You pull out of the driveway, you head down the park, and from the back you hear, I have to pee. You turn around. Nobody's experienced that, right? Turn around, go back to the car. Someone jumps out. Get back in the car, head back down. And a couple miles down the road, someone says, hey, did you bring this? I didn't bring that. Did you bring that? I'm like, well, I guess we're going. And something else goes on. A little bit later down, the, you get a flat tire. A little bit later down, the campsite's booked. A little bit later down, whatever. And just, you get the end. It's like, what was I thinking? Maybe you've had one of those weeks where you go into work and you've got this schedule of how the week should go. You've got appointments booked. You've got meetings booked. You've got plans, things to do. And Monday morning, the whole thing blows up because of a crisis. And you get to the end of Monday and think, well, at least you made it through Monday. And then you show up Tuesday and the same thing happens over and over again. And you just think to myself, what What am I going to do about fill in the blank? Or perhaps one of the most dangerous questions you can ever ask, what else could possibly go wrong? Or you're sitting just rubbing your eyes saying, I can't believe this happened. As we've got all those memories floating through our minds, let me ask, do you know rest in your life? And not just the like rainbows and sunshines, pie in the sky, you know, the Care Bear countdown, clouds and gumdrops and unicorns. The, 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 the rest that's not really rooted in anything, but just sort of this ethereal, if we get there, then I can have, take a break and breathe and rest. But rather, like, like a rest and a peace that is rooted in a, in a deep, everyday, street-level hope in Jesus. Do you know that rest? This passage is really timely for me personally as I've been wrestling with rest uh, for the last number of weeks. And I trust that it will be for you too, wherever, wherever you're at today. We're nearing the end of 1 Peter, so if you have a Bible, I'll invite you to open up or click up or swipe up to 1 Peter chapter 5. I'm going to pick it up at verse 6. I'll read the passage for us and then we'll dive in. Uh, just before verse 6, remember that uh, Peter has quoted the Proverbs and said, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And he launches into this kind of concluding part of the, the letter. And he says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your cares on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded and be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. And the God of all grace, 
who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore and establish and strengthen and support you after you have suffered for a little while. To him be dominion forever. Amen. This is just such a, a wonderful section of Scripture. And there are, there are several that, that you could point to and say, if you can memorize one chunk, it would be this one. And I think this has got to be on that list, these verses 6 to 11. There's one kind of connecting theme that runs through this conclusion or this closing call of the letter. There's, there's five things that Peter gives his people, his, his original churches, to, to think about, to focus on, that, that he's calling them to in the midst of trial, in the midst of difficulty and suffering, in the midst of living in a world that seems completely different than what Jesus has called them to. And he calls people to rest. Now, I don't know the specifics of your situation, but I know that you live in a world that isn't the way it's supposed to be. And I know that we live in a world that is filled with and we're surrounded by brokenness and pain and, and difficulty and sin. And I know that in some way, shape, or form, every single one of us is experiencing difficulty or suffering of some kind. How do you deal with it? What's your go-to suffering solution? Do you try to just like, Buckle down and work harder. If I accomplish more, that's got to get me through this, right? Or do you, classic introvert tendency, just shut her down, push people away and withdraw? When you start to experience difficulty, do you start to lash out at people? Usually those closest to you? Are you tempted? When you hit hard times, are you tempted to doubt God? Man, if God's really good. How can I possibly be going through this? Do you find yourself tossing and turning at, at night or, or looking for something to just dull the racing mind, to just quiet the pain, whether that's food or drink or, or doom-scrolling your device or whatever it might look like for you? How do you deal with it? And what does real rest look like? Well, Peter gives us five things here. And I don't want this to be a to-do list, but it's a list, so we'll start there. And the first thing he says is to know your place. The first way to rest is to know your place. It's, it's having the right outlook on the world and understanding how you fit into the world. See, there's a real connection between humility and rest. When I take myself and I look at my problems, when I look at all the things and I put myself in the center of the universe and think it's all about me, I'm the solution or potential solution to the problem. Or when I try to, to, to leverage other people or relationships or let's use a less kind word, manipulate other people to try to get the results that I want. All I'm setting myself up for is a life of worry and anxiety and fear and discouragement and disappointment because guess what? I am not the solution. Look again at what Peter says. He says, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Let him exalt you at the proper time. As I was studying this week, one thing that popped out as I read the passage was, Timing is everything. What does it mean to, to know 
your place? What does it mean, mean to find rest by knowing your place? A few suggestions. One is you, you trust in God's wisdom more than you trust in your own wisdom. You trust in God's wisdom more than you trust in your own wisdom and understanding. You believe that his way is wise and the things that he calls you to are also wise and good and right and true. And even or or especially when our culture, which let's not, I don't even know what, let's recognize that they are opposed to God, our culture around us. When our culture celebrates something opposite, we trust that God's wisdom is, is good. Think about how our, our culture celebrates and, and emphasizes what our priorities should be, what our finances should look like, what our relationships or marriages should look like or consist of, what does our culture talk about for gender even, or sexuality. There are so many things that our culture tells us to chase after and says these things, when you get them, they will bring you happiness and fulfillment and meaning and purpose. Go for it. But all of our best research says they actually don't work. Think about wealth, first of all. There's a certain amount of, of income and wealth that everyone needs to have to cover your basic necessities. Once you get past that mark, again, our, our best research says if you polled everybody in, this, in the town or in the city, wherever we are, and said, how much do you need to be happy? Once you've got your basics looked after, you know what the answer is? 10% more. It doesn't matter how much you're making. The answer is always 10% more. There's always that lure of more in wealth. Think about relationships and uh, consequence-free physical relationships that have been, you know, just bragged about as this, this, this freedom since the late 60s. Again, our best research tells us the more intimate partners you have, the less happy you are. It's a graph. As, as partners go up, no. As partners go up, happiness goes down. And it's going to be reversed on the screen probably. Anyways, you get the point. And again, the, re the repetition we get from research is the happiest most sexually satisfied people are monogamous, married, heterosexual, religious couples. That, that's the research. Go wading into some deep things here. Gender and gender transition. I'm sure there's research that I haven't found. But as I've read people who have read the research, there is not one long-term study that actually has legitimate research methods to suggest that all the hormone therapy and all the surgery actually produces a lasting happiness. Short-term, sure. The ones that, that, are, that are flaunted as, look at how happy everyone are, it's like four to six month trials and then they lose track of people. The number of, of detransitioners is exploding. There's one uh, group that kind of gets highlighted on Reddit that uh, a few years ago, this group that were kind of a support, an online support group for one another as they, they had gone through a transition and now we're trying to go back to their biological sex. It was something like 4,500 a few years ago, 
Now it's like 45,000, like 10x. There's currently a lawsuit in the Ontario Superior Court by a a biological woman who went through all the surgeries, all the treatments, and it took her, her story nine years before an appointment with a doctor. Someone said, this sounds like depression, actually. This sounds like anxiety. This sounds like, like, uh, like maybe you're on the autism spectrum. And now she's transitioned back. Our world can put out all this wisdom, but to rest is to trust God's wisdom more than our own. The second thing, uh, knowing your place means resting in his sovereignty, resting that, that he is in control. It's believing that our lives are not out of control. They might be out of my control. My life might be out of my control, but it's not out of God's control. And there's peace in that. Paul, elsewhere in the New Testament, wrote in Ephesians chapter 1 that, that he rules over all things for the sake of his body, for the church. And God's rule is loving and kind and benevolent and for the sake of his children. And I hope and pray for, for me and us that this wouldn't just be maybe a Bible verse that we're familiar with, a concept that, yes, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, blah, blah, blah. But that would actually make that move from our brains to our hearts. That we would know he's in control even when I can't see it. Maybe especially when I can't see it. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper hand at the proper time. This is the way we were meant to live. That phrase that he uses there too, the mighty hand of God, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that's, uh, if you're familiar with your Bible, you might recognize that as Exodus language. That comes way back early in the Bible. When we watch the story of the Israelites being led out of slavery in Egypt and into God's promised land for them, you know what did the work? The mighty hand of God. Not the leaders. Not the people, nothing else. The mighty hand of God. Now us, some several thousand years later, because of Jesus' work on the cross, we've been freed from slavery to sin and have been led back into a relationship with God the Father that will ultimately lead us to the new heaven and the new earth where we will live with him forever. All that work done by the mighty hand of God. See, we weren't created to live independent lives by ourselves, figuring out on our own. We were created to live in a dependency on God. And when we do that, we actually go along with what one philosopher called the grain of the universe. How many have picked up a piece of wood and it can be like treated a little bit and you rub it one way and it's just just super smooth, right? And everything's going right, but then you go the other way and you got to get the tweezers out to get the slivers out, right? Going against the grain of the wood is a bad thing. But living in dependency on God is going with the grain of the universe. So to rest, we need to know our place. The second thing Peter tells us, he continues and says, to rest in God's care. Now, if this whole passage is worth memorizing, maybe this little verse is most important. Probably because it's a little bit shorter. But also, I think it's one of the most significant things that we can learn from this text and maybe from the New Testament. Peter says in verse 7, cast all of your cares, all of your anxieties, all of your worries on him because he cares about you. When things, uh, let me rephrase, think about the things in your life that cause you to worry. 
that, that make you fearful, that make you anxious, or when you start to think about them, you can actually feel your blood pressure going up, your heart beating a little bit faster, and that panic level start to climb. Of, of all the endless graces we're given by God, this might be, you never want to say the biggest or the best, but this is near the top of the list. One of the most overwhelming things is that the creator of the universe says, hey, when you're stressed out, I'll take it. Give it to me. Now, do you believe that? And not just up here, because many of us have grown up in around the church. We know the verse. It's short. We can memorize it. We've probably heard messages on it before. It's a good, like, summer camp message. Cast all your cares on God. Do we believe it? Like, like really believe it? There are far more days than I actually want to admit to where, where I believe this in my head. I know the verses. I've memorized the thing. I've preached on the text. I've studied the text. But when stress hits, I was like, what do I have to do to get out of this? Where the first thing should be, okay, Jesus, I don't know what's going on here, and I need you. Functionally, I'm saying to myself, and maybe you've said this too, God doesn't actually care about me. I have to be the solution to this. My problems are too small for him. I'm too small for him. But the text says, cast all your cares on him. Everything. I prayed in the first service. I'll pray again. Jesus, I just pray for a fresh outpouring of your, your spirit on us this morning, and I pray that you would reveal uh, the lies in our lives that we're believing that think we're too small or not enough. I pray that you would just knock down the, the lies we tell ourselves, the lies of the enemy that, that make us think that you don't care about us. Pastor and writer Paul Tripp, writing on this passage, says this, he cares about your concerns. He cares about your responsibilities. He cares about the situations and locations that you live in. He cares about your relationships. He cares about your temptations. He cares about your weaknesses. Your Lord cares for you. He cares for you. He cares for you. He cares for you. He cares for you. One of the, the probably the deep, dark secrets of the Western church, maybe especially, is just how much fear and anxiety we carry ourselves because we don't give it to him. We've had friends uh, who, I think I may have shared this before, but who, who moved from Southern Africa and South Africa to Canada, and they're living in Manitoba now, and we got to visit with them soon after they moved, maybe a few months after they moved in, and we're like, how are you experiencing the Canadian church? Because it's different. And he goes, there's so much fear here. You guys are scared of everything. Like, oh, nice to see you too. <laughs> but he's right, right? We carry so much fear and anxiety, and it paralyzes us. It stops us from doing things. It, it discourages us. It robs us of hope. It robs us of the transformation that Jesus promised us and, and was trying to work on us, all because we're hanging on to fear and anxiety that God has told us Give it to me. It's not just Peter that talks about this either. Jesus said this, right? Matthew 11, he says, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened. I think we could say, who have fear and anxiety and stress and have cares that seem overwhelming. Come to me and I will give you rest. 
I love how the, the message paraphrase takes that verse and says, Are you, has Jesus saying, Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? That being religion there being like striving to be good enough to earn good things. Jesus says, Come to me. Get away with me and you will recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Now I'm sure this isn't just me, but when I hang on to my cares and anxieties and fears and worries, they start to crowd out everything good in my life. Someone I love, like my wife or kids, can be talking to me, and I've got the stuff just spitting in my head, and I don't have a hot clue what they've just said to me across the breakfast table. Not a clue. I could be walking down the street or through the grocery store and someone comes by and says, Hey, Sean, how's it going? And I just keep walking and ignore them as if they, they don't even exist. If that's ever been you, I apologize. I'm working on casting my cares on the Lord. Time can just seemingly disappear because I'm so wrapped up in something other than the present moment. But if I, and if we believe that the Lord cares for us, then our first instinct when these things come up, fear, anxiety, struggle, suffering, all the things, our first instinct should be to bring Jesus into it. Because that's what he asks us to do. And I don't think there's a, there's a trick to it. I don't think there's some like magic phrase you have to say to unload it on Jesus. I think you can start with, Jesus, I don't know what I'm doing, and I need your help. Because he cares for you. Peter goes on and says, take life seriously. Verse 8, be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. Again, this might be a familiar verse when, when we started in, I think, September talking about this letter. Many of you maybe thought, ooh, I know this, this verse from the end. Maybe we'll get there someday. I think we just need to sit in it for a second, though. Because there's a couple of things. First, how we think matters. Not once does, does Jesus or any of the apostles tell us to shut off our brains to follow him. Not once. Being sober-minded, being alert, means being clear thinking. And, and it means thinking about how you think. What's impacting the way you think? Are you, are you taking your clues from Scripture? Are you, are you seeking out that wisdom and then basing your life on that? Or... Are you just doing something because that's the way we've always done it? It's the way my daddy did it, and his daddy did it, and his daddy did it, and my kid will probably do it too. Are you just going with the flow, letting life happen to you? He's asking, do you take life seriously? Are, are you on alert? Are you watchful? And what are we watching for? Our adversary, the devil who's prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. Has anyone ever watched, like, National Geographic, Planet Earth? I, I could listen to David Attenborough talk about anything forever. Planet Earth, love it. All these nature shows, they always end up in the African wilds, right? Always. And we look and we see these nice lions, and they look cuddly, and the male's got the big manes. It's like, I just want to pet them. But then we see them eat. Right? And it's a little different. 
we're called to spiritual sobriety, to be clear thinking, to be, to be watchful, sober-minded, because there's more to life than just what we can see with our physical eyes. We believe, as followers of Jesus, that it, there is actually evil in the world. It's actually a thing, and there is a personal evil as well. There is a, a devil whose mission is to steal, kill, and destroy, and whose mission is to divide and devour And every single day, every single one of us will face hundreds of temptations, whether we realize it or not. Temptations to just straight outright sin. Temptations to doubt who we are in our standing before God. Temptations to that that confuse us about what's true and what's not. Temptations towards idolatry, which is so much more than just having some carved image, but, but rather putting something in God's place in our lives and chasing after. That can be relationships, money, food, status, all the things. But here's the thing. I love this in one of the books I read, one of the commentaries I was reading. When the lion is on the prowl, neither the shepherd nor the sheep sleep. So pay attention and be clear thinking. Before we moved here, we lived in Calgary, and one of my favorite places to go in Calgary was the zoo. We lived about a 15-minute walk from the zoo for, uh, I don't know, years, many years. And once kids started to come along, I don't know if they liked it. They liked the playgrounds at the zoo. I liked the animals. I liked to take my camera down there. And there's a couple moments that I will never forget from the zoo. One of them, if, if you're familiar with the Calgary Zoo, the bulk of it is on an island in the river, which is, anyways, but it's, it's long, right? It's quite a long island. And there was one day, we were over by the tigers, which is way on, like, the west end of the zoo, and the lions came out, and they roared. And you could almost, like, feel it in your chest a kilometer away. So naturally, I grab my camera, I go running back to see what's happening with the lions. Again, if you're familiar with the zoo, you might know that they have a lot of really, they've done a great job of being like a family-friendly place, an engaging place. They've got great exhibits, and they have lots of time to meet with the keepers. And if you walk around the zoo and look at just the right signs, you'll find there's a schedule to feed the carnivores. This is the best, the best schedule in the place. And so there was one time where we watched them feed the lions. And first they had... We watched them feed, feed the, the ladies, and yeah, that was okay. But then we got to watch them feed the male lions one day. And it's not just like when, you, when they feed the sheep or whatever, they just throw a bale in there and walk away and whatever. But the lions, there's this tree up by the glass at the front where the people can stand, and there's a big meat hook on it. And somebody, I think he, must, he or she must grab the short straw, walks out carrying this big roast hangs it on this tree, and then has to get out. And I was saying, too, in the first, I worked at a, a plywood mill for seven years, kind of through high school or through university. And as I was there, the like safety measures went up and up and up. And to go in places, you had to lock things out and all the things. I cannot imagine the safety procedure for the guy or girl who has to go into the lion cage carrying the meat. Because anyway, So as this meat's coming through the room, right, you see the lions in the back. They know what's coming. They have enough internal clock and enough sense, and they're just pacing back and forth, right? These big, fluffy lines, and they're watching the meat hanging on the hook, and they know what's coming. And then all of a sudden, the gate opens, and boom! Two guys, it's always a competition. I say it's not, but it is. Blast across the thing, launch themselves into the air, rip this meat off the thing, and it's just like carnage. 
our enemy is like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Next time you go to the zoo, plan your visit around the lion feeding day. Take your Bibles, open up to 1 Peter chapter 5, get nice and close to the glass, and watch. Our enemy is always looking for weakness, looking for opportunities where we're not paying attention, looking for, for, for when we make unwise choices, when we expose ourselves to things that we shouldn't, when we live unwisely. So be on guard, stay alert. Fourth, in verse uh, 9, he says, Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. There's something interesting about this verse that, that, that Peter puts resisting the devil in context with suffering and attaches them together. Uh, the reason for this, I think, is that when we're faced with suffering, we're often also morally and spiritually vulnerable. Think about it. When you're suffering, when you're going through hard things, when, when the world seems like too much, what are you tempted to do? Maybe get angry. You're tempted to maybe envy somebody else's life. How come I can't have it easy like they do? To doubt God. How can God possibly exist if I have to go through this? Tempted to question your beliefs. This can't make sense because I'm experiencing this other thing. Maybe you're tempted to be irritable and unkind and unloving. None of us here, of course. but Maybe you're tempted to be proud and think, the world should really just kind of come around me, cater to my whims, coddle me through this, and help me. So Peter connects resisting and standing firm with suffering. And it really is a wise and, and pastoral move. It shows his heart for the churches here. So he reminds them, listen, you guys aren't going through anything unique. There are others, brothers and sisters in the faith around the world that are experiencing this exact same thing. You know what one of uh, Satan, one of the devil's most regular, tempting, seductive lies is? You're alone in this. Nobody else understands. Don't bother telling anybody. No one else is tempted like this. No one is suffering like this. No one identifies with what you're going through, which then really snowballs and turns into, gee, where is your good God now? Right? Peter says, don't fall for that. Suffering is universal. And listen, if you live in a fallen world, which you do, somehow, some way, suffering will enter your door. And if you stand for Jesus in a culture that has rejected him, suffering will be a part of your experience. One commentator says, the only way for us to escape suffering, if you want out, here you go, here's the answer, is to totally give in to the way of the world. But in doing so, you will completely abandon the gospel and the community that's shaped by it. And I, I'm sure, too, as well, when Peter wrote, wrote this, and we can expand it to today, Peter is not saying, take heart. There is someone somewhere on God's green earth that is thinking the same thing. Today, there's 7 billion people. Maybe whatever you're going through, there's someone in the States going through, and someone else in China going through, and someone else in South America going through. But that's, maybe that's it, just four of you. But at least there's four of you. I'd be confident in saying whatever you're going through, whatever temptations you're facing, whatever suffering you're resisting, there's probably someone in the room going through the same thing. 
Now, in the first service, there were a few less people, so I said, let's take both rooms. So I'll give you that grace as well. Someone who has been here this morning or tuned in online who is going through the same thing, which just reminds us that, church, we need each other. Which brings us to Peter's final point, point, to trust God's grace. He says this in verse 10. And the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore and establish and strengthen and support you after you have suffered for a little while. He says, trust in God's working grace, his sanctifying grace. Trust that he's still with you, he's still for you, he's still transforming you. we got to hear this. This might be the most important thing that you'll hear this morning. Because you need this and I need this. The Lord will not turn from his grace. He will not give up on you. You might give up on him. But our suffering will not stop him from working. Our circumstances won't get in the way of his work. He will finish the work he started in you. And he will restore you and confirm you and strengthen you and establish and secure and support you. This grace is sure. It's dependable. It's always there, and he will not stop. So, what's Peter saying? He's saying, even though you face hard things, we all do. We all will. Even though life is rough, even though you don't understand your circumstances, even though you find yourself in places you never thought you'd be and never wanted to be, even though you face misunderstanding and rejection, Jesus is still king. And Jesus is still in control. And because of that, we can have hope and we can find rest. How do we live out of that rest? We know our place. We recognize who we are and we know who God is. We, we take Peter up on the promise to cast all our anxieties on him because he cares for us. We take life seriously. We think about how we think. We be alert and sober-minded. We resist the enemy no matter what. And we believe that his grace will keep on working in our heart. Let me pray. Father God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this opportunity that we have had to be together. And thank you for these words. I, I pray that they would drill down into each one of our hearts. I pray that even, even this afternoon, that, that something that was said, maybe we even missed it, would, would, would come alive in our, in our minds. I pray that you would show us the ways that we're trying to, to be our own saviors, to be our own little gods, to make the most out of our lives for us, and show us how well that's working, or better, how well it's not working. Thank you for your grace, that we can repent from those things and turn to you. We pray these things, Jesus, in your good name. Amen.